0: you're listening to the technology for mindfulness podcast episode 34 hosted by me robert plotkin today i'm going to be speaking with ellie burrows the ceo and co-founder of the mindful meditation studio which is based in new york city but which also provides mindfulness meditation classes online I previously interviewed the other co-founder of Mindful, Lodro Rinsler, on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Since Lodro's focus is on teaching mindfulness and Ellie's emphasis is on running the meditation studio business, in today's interview, we'll be talking about innovating in bringing mindfulness meditation to the masses while staying true to the traditional foundations of the practice. We're extremely pleased to welcome Ellie Burrows to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In today's interview with Ellie Burroughs, you'll hear about how she, through the Mindful Meditation Studio, is bringing mindful meditation practice and education to people today in their lives as they're actually leading them, such as by making meditation sessions available flexibly all throughout the day, every day, both in person and online, and by providing Meditation instruction from a very wide variety of teachers from all kinds of different meditation traditions by letting people schedule sessions online and really reaching out to people, um, making it easy for them to meditate in the middle of their busy lives, which made me think about an aspect of modern life that is pretty pervasive Uh, That I'll talk about briefly, which is shopping. (laughs) And I always enjoy relaying a concept that I've heard from Joseph Goldstein, which is what he calls catalog mind. And I think you'll get it when I tell you the example he gives, which is when he notices himself reaching for, in the old days, it would have been a paper catalog. These days might be going to Amazon or some other e-commerce site, reaching out for that and browsing through what's for sale in order to find something to want. That's how he refers to it. And it really resonated with me when I first heard it. And I think with many other people, that feeling of looking to shop, not because there's something specific you want already, And you're trying to find where to buy it or maybe what price you can get it at. But instead, having a desire to want something and looking to the catalog or the website as a source of a place that could give you a desire. (laughs) Because you're seeking out that feeling of wanting as something positive. And I think if you, I find it certainly helpful to see it that way. Cause when I state it so bluntly like that, I question, well, why, why am I looking? For something to want, I mean, certainly, I have desires, but why would I be seeking out an experience of wanting like that, and I don't have a very good answer, so it's a good way for me of recognizing a certain aspect of mindlessness, something I'd like to try to do less of, and so what I've try to do and i'm very often not successful <laughs> as if I do find myself, you know, going to a website just to browse for products when I don't have already any particular need or desire in mind. I see if I can catch myself at that moment and ask myself, am I doing this just out of catalog mind? <laughs> am I doing this just to seek out something to want? And if my answer to that is yes, it's often helpful to me in cutting short that experience of just shopping for the sake of shopping rather than shopping because there's something that I really need in my life. I hope you find that useful and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Ellie Burrows. Hi Ellie and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.
1: Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on your show today.
0: (laughs) You're one of the founders and the CEO of Mindful, which is a meditation studio in New York. Um, And I know that as the CEO, you're focused on the operations, uh, how the organization is run, uh, the systems behind it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to Running and expanding a mindfulness studio in New York City, and you know what what that provides to people, and perhaps what might be the same as or different from a more traditional meditation center.
1: Yeah, of course. So, mindful really exists to enable humans to feel good, and we help them do that by supporting them in building and or maintaining a meditation practice. In addition to our three studios, um, we're also in over 100 companies in New York City. We have a video channel called Mindful Video, a nonprofit arm called Mindful Ed, and we also have a mindful teacher training program. I think I just covered all the buckets. Anyways, so we do quite a bit um, at Mindful. And you know, this is a a big city. Um, There's a lot of action happening here on a daily basis, a lot of chaotic energy. And in a space in in a city like New York, um, I think that there's a premium on quiet space and a space where we can go to just breathe and really turn down the volume on everything that's happening around us and turn up the volume on what's happening inside of us. So Mindful really was created um, as a safe space for um, New Yorkers to go to really explore all the different kinds of meditation practices and traditions that are out there. And we have 35 expert teachers on staff who hold space daily for our community members to come and sit with us. And really the studio started from a deep personal need. Um, I was really struggling with my own meditation practice at home. And I realized that I wasn't struggling at all with my exercise practice. And I really thought about the accountability structure um, and the differences between those two. And I realized that every day I was taking my body outside of my house to my favorite spot to dance with a community that I loved seeing every day and a teacher I loved dancing with. And I really wanted to create that same accountability structure around my practice, which is how I ended up co founding Mindful with my co founder, Loder Rinsler, who I know is a previous guest or a following guest. I'm not sure what the order is. <laughs> um, but, anyways, um, you know, I figured if I had this need, then maybe 8 million other people in New York City also had the need. When I thought of um, where I wanted to go to practice meditation, it was quite stressful to think about all the different options that were available in New York City and all the different teachers. And at the time, I wasn't looking for more religion, let's say, in my life. And I wasn't quite ready for that 10-day Vipassana retreat commitment. So I really wanted a space that I could drop into with ease in my daily life in New York City. um, And that's sort of how Mindful came to be.
0: Mm, So you found that... uh What was lacking was that kind of, I don't know, flexibility, ease of access, maybe for you and other people to to access meditation easily in a way that, you know, fit their own needs and, and schedule.
1: Exactly. And, you know, especially when we're starting out, you know, 30 minutes seems like quite a lot of time to commit to meditating, to commit to do, to doing nothing, to be disconnected, right? We're here to talk about a little bit about how technology kind of interacts, you know, with our daily lives and the way we sort of are attached to it and not attached to it. So creating some safe space um, and some quiet space where you're disconnected for 30 minutes might seem um, super challenging. So I really wanted it to be as accessible as possible and as easy to book into as possible. And quite honestly, I wanted to make sure it was a space that wasn't intimidating at all. You know, all of these practices come from traditions that might seem, you know... um, you know, really disconnected from our daily life or really ancient or not relevant, um, because they don't appear to be contemporary, but a lot of the philosophy and the view and the science behind meditation is very, um, relatable to our daily lives. So, so really just that structure of allowing someone to, you know, book an Book, you know, a cushion on their computer. Pay for that cushion so they can help hold themselves accountable to it. You know, have that cushion waiting for them when they stepped foot into our studio. Have the same teacher, that familiar face, welcome them into the into the studio, and just sort of create a accountability structure around around the practice that would really allow one to show up for themselves.
0: So it sounds like um, you're making a little bit of use of technology as part of it. You talked about. Enabling people to schedule a specific cushion on the mat at a certain time, knowing that it'll be there for them and that they'll know which teacher and that'll be the same teacher there for them each time, or at least they'll know who it will be when they schedule.
1: Exactly. And I think that act of really um, being able to sit at your desk or on your phone and look at your calendar um, sort of in a macro way and see what's occurring during the week. And then, you know, allowing yourself to schedule in some blocks and some time um, that are just for you so you can reset, recharge, go inward, um, and really seeing where those holes are in your calendar um, where you can do that and and making that promise to yourself. So um, technology is a a big part of our booking process, to be quite honest, um, from the moment where you sign on to our website to you know book your cushion uh, to when we check you in at at you know at the studio, but once once you're checked in, um, we sort of leave technology there, and the studio becomes a tech free space as is the room that you practice in. we we really don't allow any sort of technology or cell phones in those rooms.
0: It may be that you've answered this already, but just to be entirely clear, it sounds like you're saying people are enabled to and often, in fact, do schedule different times from day to day or week to week?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I think of my own schedule, and I think it's true for, for many people, it seems like this is the kind of situation you're addressing. Uh, my schedule changes very frequently. It is hard for me to commit to a particular class at the same time, let's say once a week, even if it's only for an hour. And for better or worse, you know, that wasn't true, I think, for as many people 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it's, you as you know, it's very, very common now.
1: It's very common. And so really being able to sort of Identify where there's hole, where those holes are in our calendar, and then sort of with ease be able to fill those holes. Um, you know, with with this practice, um, that that booking process is is definitely um, crucial to the experience. Yeah, and the flexibility. We notice actually that um, so many of our uh, community members will actually book their cushion and select their class based on time first and teacher second. So even if you, your favorite teacher is teaching, but it's not aligned with your schedule, often we'll see community members choose the class time that is most suitable to their to their schedule. And you know when the stars align and your schedule um, you know matches with your favorite teacher, that's obviously optimal.
0: And I know you referred to this as a, an accountability structure, um, and I, I wonder how you've seen that. Play out and what what kind of feedback you've gotten from the students and the teachers about it. I mean, I'm guessing, for example, you're saying people will feel more motivated to show up when they say they were going to show up uh, because they know the teacher may miss them there seeing that they were going to be there, or they'll feel personally responsible to show up when they committed to do it. Uh, I see how the, the systems you put in place would encourage that. And have you heard back from students and teachers that that, in fact, occurs and helps them stick to the schedules they pick?
1: Yes, we have heard that. And just with meditation in general, something that I often like to talk about and we talk about at Mindful are the three C's. So meditation is is really beneficial when you're practicing consistently over, you know, a, a You know, basically, I guess most studies show that 10 minutes a day for about 10 to 12 weeks um, is really where you start to see the benefits build. So those three C's that we talk about at Mindful are first commitment. So making that commitment to a, a meditation practice in your life and making that time commitment on your calendar. And then second, consistency. So showing up, you know, consistently, whether that's every day, whether that's three times a week, whether that's once a week for your practice, and then cumulative, the benefits that you are cumulative over time, so they build. And I've often found in my own practice that the best way to, you know, continue to pursue this is at you know, is to be inspired by my own witnessing of those benefits, you know, showing up in my own life and building over time. So so I'm I know that for me, that's always been what's drawn me back to the cushion is that I experience the benefits firsthand in real time and would like to continue experiencing those benefits like stress resilience, increased increased creativity, deep relaxation, um, clarity, focus, things like that.
0: It's very interesting. I, I found the same thing in my own practice that certainly consistency maybe leads to the cumulative effect and that even if I... I'm not able to stick with, let's say, the same time of day every day, I've certainly found it's perhaps more important that I'm doing it regularly in terms of, like you said, three times a week, four times a week, even if I'm varying the time of day. And and have you heard that back from people? Because certainly, traditionally, I think it's more common, was was more common for people to do it at the same time Mm -hmm. every day, let's say upon waking or something like that.
1: Sure. And I completely agree with you, Robert. So, um, you know, what I say is, you know, we're in being, having a meditation practice is a lot like being in an interpersonal, really serious, committed relationship. So our feelings towards our practice can ebb and flow over the course of, you know, our lives. So, you know, in the beginning, I think it's really helpful to be like, okay, you know, 10 minutes every morning before work or 10 minutes when I get home from work or 10 minutes at lunchtime when we're really trying to root a practice and start. But once we feel pretty grounded in it um, and we feel really connected to it and we know we return to it regularly, we might allow a little more flexibility around when we're doing it throughout our day. So I prefer to meditate first thing in the morning when I get up and then do my second meditation sometime between four and six o'clock. Now, if I have a okay. window earlier than that, great, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my meditation at two. And if sometimes something runs late at work, that's okay. You know, I'll, I'll do it at seven o'clock. And really, I think part of what the muscle we learn to flex when we're practicing is objectivity and non-judgment. So I think the most, you know, it would be quite unkind and not compassionate at all. If I was like, Ellie, you missed your meditation between four and six, you're the <laughs> right. worst meditator on the planet, you know, there's no such thing. Um, you know, so I'm just in, I just know that I'm in relationship and it, and it has its own rhythm to it. And, you know, some days I'm really enamored with my practice and I can't wait to do it when I get up in the morning and can't wait to do it in the afternoon. And then sometimes, you know, I feel myself getting sucked into the abyss of my inbox, into my technology, into my laptop and my, you know, meditation practice feels far away from whatever Is is I'm doing. So, you know, really being able to catch myself when I'm in sort of an internet rabbit hole, <laughs> you know, not dissimilar to the way I can catch myself when my thoughts are running off in meditation. I can really learn to flex that muscle and say, hey, okay, you know, you're buried in your inbox. It might be helpful to sit right now. You know, make the time to sit right mm. now. Don't keep putting off your sit. So yeah, there is no such thing as a good and bad meditator or like a meditator that meditates on time. I think, you know, our lives are flexible and to have flexible flexibility of mind is important.
0: Yeah, that's that's excellent. I'm curious to know. Um uh what you've heard from the teachers about this kind of schedule and system for them, I can imagine it might be a little different from them to be perhaps leading more sessions during the day or at an irregular schedule. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like from their perspective and how it might be different from the way, let's say, those who've been teaching for a long time may have taught before in other contexts?
1: Oh interesting. So yeah, so our model is very different. So mindful in a way what we used to say in the very very beginning is we bring the teachers off the mountains and deliver them students off the street that would never otherwise climb the mountain, right? So we're creating this neutral zone where everything is very accessible. We remove sort of any foreign jargon out of our classrooms and having the same teacher show up at the same time on the schedule really allows for consistency for our community members to know that hey, you know every Saturday morning, Ralph is teaching at Brooklyn or every Friday afternoon, you know, Kevin is at the Upper East Side. So whatever the schedule is, you know, community members can rely on that consistency to also help them become consistent. And for our teachers, that means that they're seeing the same faces that are able to come at the same time to their classes. So relationships begin to build and maybe you're not climbing up that mountain and staying there for a 10 day retreat, month long retreat, three month retreat, Mm -hmm. but you're coming, you know, three days a week, four days a week, 30 minutes a day. And that is really helping you in your daily life. And sort of, it's, it's in the context of your work and your family and all the other things that, you know, are inclusive in having this sort of living experience here in New York. So, you know, and we also have our, our video platform, Mindful Video. So um, 15% of our community that actually lives outside of New York City can still practice with those same teachers um, online. So that's been, that's been pretty special too. But I think the teachers enjoy, you know, seeing the same students at the same times and it, it helps to build the relationship.
0: I was going to ask about the video versus in-person because part of what struck me about the general model you have is that you are making a lot of use of technology to facilitate then in-person uh, meditation, mm. <laughs> which is very interesting. Yes, when course. people talk about online education or use of technology, often what they're talking about is distance education, you know, virtual mm-hmm. teaching. And, and And most of what we've been talking about until your last comment was... Uh, yeah using technology to facilitate people getting together in person
1: mm, mm-hmm. so yes, so technology is obviously very efficient um, and it makes our lives much easier in a lot of ways and so mindful's approach to technology is um as you know is one of efficiency, which means if it helps us book and it helps us get you to class and we can share, you know, events and happenings with you through technology, that's wonderful. But our core principle is that there's really no substitute for one human being holding space for another human being, especially when practicing. So if for some reason you don't have access to an in-person teacher we, we are a fan of apps or we are a fan of mindful video. We have we see no problem with, you know, accessing this content online as a way to deliver quality teachings that are rooted in integrity to you, um, you know, in an efficient manner. If you can't, you know, drive 3000 miles to your nearest <laughs> mindful, um, we'll bring mindful to you. But of course, our preference would be that if you are here in New York City and you do have access or you're in another city and you have access to a real in-person teacher, we'll always encourage you um, to seek that out. I think there's just a a palpable difference between the two.
0: And let me ask you about it. And I have spoken on the podcast to other teachers uh, who are experiment, teachers and organizations who are experimenting with different forms of online versus in-person. And uh, could you start by just telling us when you say video, are you talking about live interactive video? Is it one on one? Is it what one, one teacher to a group? Is it is are there pre recorded? And, and how have you how do you make those kinds of decisions about how to deliver uh, the teaching online uh, in order to stay consistent with your overall mission and values?
1: Yeah. So um, so mindful video is called video because it's not just an audio app. So you can actually see the teachers on screen sitting in front of our green wall. We've tried to make that experience as similar to the in-studio experience as possible. So you can really see the teacher that's in front of you. You can notice their posture. You can, you know, use some of those cues to help your sit be even more beneficial. And that's really wonderful. And mindful video is mostly static content. I think we have close to 200 videos on there now um, from our teachers representing all our various thematic classes and ranging from, I believe, one minute quick fixes to, you know, 30 minute sits. Maybe we might even have a 45 minute sit on there. So, you know, that's, that's one version of it. And then of course, for some of our corporate clients that have national offices, we'll do live um, streaming. So maybe they're, someone in the New York or a group in the New York office is sitting with the same teacher consistently and that Los Angeles office would also like to experience that teacher, then we'll sort of set up some time in our back room in front of that signature green wall and have, um, you know, an offer session over, let's say, Skype or Google. Um, It's very rudimentary right now. You know, I think when the company grows and we're no longer a startup, you know, our hope is that we'll have the kind of um, resources to build our own technology so it feels a little less ad hoc in terms of that offering but but for now you know um that's that's sort of that's the reality of the limitations of of you know a new young growing business
0: yeah a lot of what strikes me about uh, what you've talked about is providing uh both the people who are coming to meditate with flexibility but also uh, practicing flexibility and openness in how you design and, and run the business in terms of providing schedules that are flexible, uh, modes of delivery that are flexible. And and another thing I'd like to ask you more about, as you mentioned early on, that you have teachers from multiple traditions, which strikes me as quite unusual mm-hmm. to have under one roof. Yeah. Traditionally, you know, my, what I'm familiar with is there being a, a certain retreat center or school that adheres to a particular tradition, and everyone there teaches from that tradition. And that that's the norm. So I wonder what went into your thinking about it. And, and again, how does that play out both with the students and the teachers to have multiple traditions being taught in one studio?
1: Yeah. So when we started Mindful, I was really struggling with my practice at home. And like I said, I wanted a place to go where I could sort of explore Everything that the meditation world had to offer and the idea of running around to meet all these different teachers and all these different centers and knowing what was going to be the right fit or not felt even more intimidating and stressful um, than just going to one place. So mindful really offers up many traditions for our community members consideration. So they know themselves best. So when they come into the studio, they have a sense of what they're looking to get out of their experience or why they're bringing meditation into their life. And so we're offering up different styles so that they can try them out and see what really works because once, you know, one size does not fit all when it comes to meditation. And I think it's been incredible for the teachers to learn from one another and to sort of figure out how to make their tradition as accessible as possible for these, you know, beginners who are coming in. And we also have seasoned practitioners who sit with us regularly as well, but mindful is really sort of just a neutral space, um, to sort of, You know, and I guess in the beginning we used to call mindful a gateway drug. You know, so if you fell in love with one teacher or one tradition, (laughs) then we wouldn't. You know, you're always welcome and encouraged to go deeper, and we have lots of literature and books available that people can, you know, dive deeper into the various traditions that we offer. So I think you know, creating a space that's that was you know relaxed around trying to figure out the right style for you was important. And we sort of were inspired by the idea from some of the fitness studios. You know, you look at a um, fitness studio like Cycle. I'm going to use that as the example because they're all over the country. And you go in there and some people really like cycling to 80s music and other people prefer cycling to hip hop music. But until mm-hmm. you go into the class and you have a sense of the music, you know, you'll be like, oh, I like that teacher. I like that teacher's playlist. I like that teacher's content. So I would like to continue riding with them. It's not dissimilar to walking into, you know, a, mind, a mindful heart class and say, oh, loving kindness, that's that's really for me. Or, oh, I prefer mindfulness of the breath. Or even I prefer kundalini, a more dynamic, you know, chanting practice. Um, so really, it's, it's, you know, an opportunity to um, see sort of what flavor of meditation suits you. And I think the teachers have had, um, you know, it's been so wonderful and collaborative to get to know one another, to take each other's classes um, and to also refer to one another, you know, to say, oh, you like this loving kindness practice. So and so also offers it in a way that I think you would really dig.
0: Yeah, it's really great. I mean, it uh, it's, it strikes me as a way of doing things that has a lot of respect for and trust in students attending to make these kinds of decisions for themselves i think back to my martial arts background where i've i've certainly seen teachers and it's maybe an older way of doing things who uh, take the attitude that they know what's best for the students and that at least until the students have been practicing for, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 years, (laughs) you know, it's not it's not within their ability to make a decision about what else to study or who else to study with. And and there are some even more extreme approaches that I (laughs) won't mention, you know, teachers who don't allow their students Mm -hmm. to study with anyone else, uh, these kinds of things, um, you know. And uh, what, what you're doing, I hope this doesn't strike you the wrong way. I mean it in a positive way. It strikes me as very American. I mean, this is a very American attitude, right? To be open to lots of different approaches and to try them out and see what works and, and take the best and you know, do what's right for you. I don't know if that's part of your thinking, but that's just part of how it strikes me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you define American, right? Not to make it political, but I think we aspire to be Americans, you know, that support different ideals and different views. And, And I think the America that we are is actually quite different from that, to be honest. Um, So I think if you're talking about what the kind of America, you know, we would aspire to be, um, then sure. But if it's the actual America we are, then most certainly not. Um, But anyways, what I will say is that, you know, I'm not sure if Lodro mentioned this on his episode, but um, I learned this from him. One of the Tibetan words for meditation mean is, sorry, is gom. And gom also means to become familiar with. So meditation helps you become familiar with all of who Mm -hmm. you are and you know, call me crazy, but, um, you know, I'm not sure that someone outside of my own consciousness is the authority on me. You know, that would be a first in my life. So if I experienced right, that, right. so, you know, I think, um, you know, so much about the practice is, is like I said, about having a flexible mind. And so, you know, I personally, Ellie Burroughs has never been someone who has said this way, this is the only way. Um, I, i mean that that seems totally mm-hmm. you know counterintuitive and the opposite of what the actual world is like right so i think human beings you know they might come and say oh i don't know which one's for me first but i have a feeling that if they got quiet enough in that room and they sat and they were able to you know feel their experience and connect with that teacher that person is 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 their own authority and they would be able to totally see what style resonates with them. And as they go deeper and as they build a relationship with that teacher over time, you know, I think Uh, you know, they can continue to feel their way into it. Is this still resonating? Do I need something a little more strict? Do I need something a little more flexible? Do I need, you know, I think people have this real ability to, to navigate, um, you know, the world for themselves. And I think sometimes there's just so much noise around us. It's so hard, you know, to hear that um, still small voice inside of us. So that's part of what I think mindful is here to do, to help you just reconnect with yourself and really understand all of who you are, maybe even the parts you know you're not so psyched about.
0: So, yeah. And on, the, yeah. on that note, about the parts you're not psyched about, one concern I know, you know, some, some long time practitioners have is that someone maybe who is. Uh, experimenting with different traditions might uh, be inclined to move from one to the next when they encounter Mm -hmm. something that is that, as you said, that they're not so psyched about Mm -hmm. with themselves. Whereas if they were, they were in one tradition, I don't want to say they'd be Mm -hmm. forced to keep going. But there might they, they by staying on one path, so to speak, they might be more inclined to keep going and then move past whatever difficulty they encountered now i I can see how someone could do that in mm-hmm. your studio, and I would suspect it, a part of what it would be is having the right teacher to be there as a guide in that situation. but I wonder if you could you could speak to that maybe what i 'd call a concern. By some more traditional minded people that, you know, that people might end up dabbling, you know, or staying on the surface too much if they have exposure to too many types of traditions at once.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I totally appreciate the student teacher relationship, but I'm a pretty modern woman. And I say, you know, not having rigid attachment to someone else's spiritual practice is a practice in and of itself. So (laughs) I really ask the teacher why they're being so rigid, um, you know, about their student. And and how does that rigidity, you know, um, how does that rigidity relate to that teacher's own practice? You know, um, and how objective is that teacher really being? So I think there's a difference between, you know, a teacher being incredibly compassionate, you know, for their student and sort of the struggle they might be coming up against in their practice. But I also think there's a bit of mastery required if a teacher is really going to hold space, you know, for other people to explore their own minds and their own feelings, knowing that, you know, it's not a smooth sailing road. And how masterfully can you hold space, you know, for that Mm -hmm. person without projecting your own agenda? onto that individual. Right. That, that to me is the kind of teacher I'm looking for. Um, and so accountability is, is, for me is so much about, you know, can my teacher hold space? Can they, you know, comfort me and have compassion when I'm struggling? Can they encourage me when I seem to be on a, on a, on a super consistent streak? I mean, generally on a super consistent streak, but you know, I'm speaking about maybe someone who's starting out. So, and I think our relationships to our teachers change over time. I've seen so many people, um, you know, come to a point with a certain teacher where, you know, maybe that that student really truly has graduated from that teacher, or maybe that teacher is not resonating in the same way. And so moment after moment, I've seen certain students, you know, turn their back on the teacher. And in some ways, you know, I often think that that is could be in that moment, you know, required for that person's own consciousness raising to go through that process. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really big into condemning, you know, anyone's experience anyway, shape sure, or form um, sure. and, and really just kind of honoring that person's experience and, and respecting it. So yeah, that's my feeling on that, which obviously you can tell I feel pretty strongly about. Yeah. Um, oh so, yeah.
0: Oh, sure. Sure. You know, I, it, I think back when the first martial arts school I studied at uh, actually was in Brooklyn and it was a little unusual. Uh, The person who founded it did teach three different arts, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I remember he uh, uh, let other teachers come in from different arts Mm -hmm. and different styles. When they were teaching in his class, so to speak, he would expect they would teach somewhat like him. But I remember getting lots of exposure, you know, to people teaching. Mm-hmm. other styles. And I remember really having respect for for the head of the school uh, uh, at the time for being confident and comfortable enough to let us be exposed, you know, to other approaches in that way. And looking back on exactly. it, uh, it was a really great experience for me. And it didn't do what I sometimes hear people being concerned about, which is I don't think it diluted my experience, mm-hmm. you know, which is the concern. And I think there is some judgment to be made sometimes about, well, maybe you might want to stick with one tradition in the beginning uh, to course. learn, I
1: totally you know, learn the that.
0: basics mm-hmm. of it. But in the end, yeah, it's, it seems, it seems like an amazing opportunity you're giving people uh, both the teachers and the, and the students uh, to be and have the exposure to different uh ways of teaching and different teachers. And it sounds like you're saying the teachers themselves are also getting a lot out of it in terms of cross-pollination that maybe they haven't had the opportunity to have before.
1: Yeah. And I think that word exposure is is so important, you know, um, to be be exposed to so many different things, right? Because if we're only exposed to the same thing over and over again, then we sort of feel like that's all that there is. And so I agree that in the beginning, when you're building a practice, it is crucial to stick to one style. You know, if you're also trying to, you know, stick it to the same time on your calendar. So consistent style, consistent pacing, consistent time, consistent time of day when you're building a practice. Yes, I agree with all of that. Um, you know, and then if you're down the road and you get exposed to something else and you have this really healthy relationship to your meditation practice, um, you know, i like I said, I would never condemn you for exploring another tradition or, you know, opening up, cracking up, open a different book. Uh, you know, there's just so much out there, um, and so many different perspectives. Perspectives on how to climb that meditation mountain, uh, that, that I, I have no problem with inclusivity.
0: Uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, it strikes me in, in some ways what you're doing is creating a, like a microcosm of, of people's lives in a way, you know, mm. they are busier, they're less predictable, they're less easy to schedule. And so, uh, people are also exposed now to a lot, wider range of information than before and you're taking all of these and in some way incorporating them into the structure of the organization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say to anyone, um, now that I know you're do stuff online, not just in the New York area, you know, to say to anyone who lives mm-hmm. in New York or outside who you know has experiencing some of the challenges that you had, maybe they've dabbled in meditation. They've started. Their practice has been inconsistent, and uh, you know they want to get involved with or try out what what Mindful has to offer. What would you say to them? Where can they go? How can they find out more?
1: Yeah, um, so you can start by if you live outside of New York City, you can go to video.mindfulmeditation.com to access all of our teachers, all of our thematic classes. And if, you know, 20 minutes seems like a lot, good thing we have one minute and five minute videos just to start with. And you can sample a few of those different videos and see which teacher, you know, which teacher style you like. And then if you really are looking for something in person in your city, um, it takes a little bit of research. But in most major metropolitan areas, there are now um, meditation studios. And if you live in in a in a space that's not in a major city, then like I said, you know, there's good content online, but really understanding, I would say, you know, where where does the teacher come from? What is their lineage, their, you know, their teaching? Because the the more skillful teachers, the teachers who have, you know, committed their lives, to these wisdom traditions and offer those practices so generously, you know, to the world, those are going to be the teachers that really, um, you know, can help make this practice consistent in your life. So I know for me, when we were interviewing Um, our teachers for our studio, I was exposed to um, Mm. uh, a teacher by the name of Emily Fletcher, who has Ziva meditation in the city. And I knew that Vedic meditation was one of the dominant lineages in our country and certainly something that is widely practiced and that neither Lodra nor I had any experience in. So um, I, we met her and I said, you know, I think one of us needs to know what this mantra practice is all about. And Lodra was, you know, steeped for 30 years in his tradition. So it wasn't going to be him. Um, so I said, I'll go. And, you know, I took her four day course. And for me, that style. stuck like glue. So it was about the right Mm -hmm. teacher and the right style for me. And I knew immediately as I started practicing it, that for me, the way it resonated and the quality of it in my own life was so vastly different from the way I had sort of approached or felt about mindfulness. And that's not to knock mindfulness because we offered at the studio and it's a lovely practice. It just wasn't the right one for me. So, Mm -hmm. um, really, you know, being able to listen to yourself and know kind of what, what suits you best. And by the way, the last thing I'll say is, you know, meditation can be very uncomfortable in the beginning when we're first learning (laughs) starting to sit. So, you know, um, that, that, that understanding that that discomfort is definitely a part of that, of that initial process. And still, even if you're steeped in your practice, um, there can be moments of true discomfort and that's, that's all part of it. And, and I would encourage, you know, people just not to run away from that, uh, because, because that's sometimes that's where we really grow.
0: Yeah, it's a really great thing to mention to people who haven't been involved in it or involved in in depth before. Mm -hmm. Uh, An encouragement, not necessarily to give up or to think you're doing something wrong. If you're feeling uncomfortable, it's a normal part of the process. Exactly. It's
1: totally normal.
0: Well, this is great, Ellie. Thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot more about Mindful and uh, encourage our listeners to check out your site or your studios in person. So thanks so much for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast today.
1: Thanks, Robert. I really appreciate it. And I so enjoyed our conversation as well.
0: Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Ellie Burrows, the co-founder of the Mindful Meditation Studio in New York City. You can find out more about Ellie and the Mindful Meditation Studio at mndflmeditation.com. That's mndflmeditation.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And download a free sample of our upcoming Tap into Mindfulness course for taking control over your smartphone at bit.ly slash tfmmeditation. That's bit.ly slash Meditation. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Nir Eyal, an expert in behavior change and habit formation, who will talk both about how to design habit-forming products and how to be mindful about forming our own habits and about interacting with products that are designed to shape our habits.